Well, 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 everyone, it is yet another Wednesday in 2017, and this is Rafael Garcia, and I am back for yet another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is March 8th, 2017, and I want to say thank you for taking a moment to listen to this show as uh, I await my partner in crime, Shawan Humes. He'll probably be joining me at some point in time today, but not going to sit around and wait for the man. I know he's going to jump in when he can. So uh, we are here yet again, or I am here. I'm talking in the plural when it's just one. But I'm back here today to talk about uh, mixed martial arts, the great sport, the great art. And we're going to look at some things from this past week of action. And we're going to also look forward to this coming week and talk about some of the um, some of the fights for this Saturday. But before I start, I just want to take a moment and say, you know, it's International Women's Day. Or uh, so I just want to say thank you to all the women who a listen to the show, b who follow along with mixed martial arts and let us know that this is not just a man's world. Thank you to the women who get into the cage and fight to give us something to talk about. But more importantly, just thank you to women for being who you are. Uh, none of us would be here without you. Literally, literally and figuratively. And yeah, without that, you know, we would, I mean, without you guys and, and women doing what you really do, none of us would be really where we are uh, on this day. So I want to take a minute to say thank you um, and appreciate all that you do in every shape and form. So yeah, with that, with that being said, let's go ahead and uh, move forward with the show and talk about some things that we got going on. So first and foremost, you know, I definitely want to start with looking back at UFC 209. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to look forward to UFC 106. I want to cover the main event from Bellator 174 and just talk about some news from uh, some news, some observations from this past week. So again, thank you. Uh, if you're listening to the show, give us a like. Share us across your social media outlets, and if you're listening to the show after the fact and when we're not live, do the same. Share share our content, and as always, we uh, appreciate you guys helping us. We're definitely growing, getting more views every single week, so we wouldn't do that without you guys supporting us each and every day. So let's go ahead and jump into some of the commentary surrounding uh, MMA this past week. First and foremost, you know, I want to look at UFC 209. And just as with any major combat sports event, we always got to start with the main event. Guys, everybody really paid to see. And that was the rematch between one Tyron Woodley and Stephen Thompson. Now, it's going to, I, I haven't had the opportunity to sit down and listen to some of the commentary. Not that this show is, not that that um, event is over. But the event, the commentary was was something worth watching. You know, it's it's clear as day now. Tyron Woodley walked out of the cage with his um, welterweight title. He pulled off a majority decision. Two judges had it, had it for him, and one had to fight a 47-47 draw. So uh, there, there definitely was that. 
And this fight was very different than the first contest from back at UFC 205. And it was different in a bad way. Um, fans were grossly upset, very loud booing, very loud um, resentment. You know, Dana White's come out and said that he believes Thompson won the fight. I mean, you have um, Nevada State uh, Athletic Commission commissioners bad-mouthing judges who gave the last round to Woodley as a 10-8. I mean, this whole thing is just a straight mess, and it was a straight debacle. And uh, there's a lot of reasons to talk about why that occurred. But first and foremost, let's talk about the action first. Woodley pulled out a majority decision. Uh, the fight was very, very close. It, was, it wasn't. It was kind of tough to score, um, but not fully. I definitely had the fight for Woodley at the end. The first two rounds I looked at as 10-10. As, um, because neither guy did enough to really put themselves... No one did enough to be definitive about the round. Um, they were both very tentative. I'm going to talk about that in a second, too. They are both very um, tentative and very cautious with what they were doing in those first two rounds. Uh, Willie had a takedown in round three, I believe. And he did some damage there. Um... Thompson had a good round four, and round five could have been a 10-10 as well until uh, Woodley got the knockdown and was looking to get the finish there. So that gave the round to him in my eyes. Not enough for a 10-8, but uh, it was definitely a, enough for a 10-9 and to get the, the victory in that round and in the victory in the fight overall. So, yes, it was, it was quite a... I don't want to say snooze fest. I don't believe in calling fights boring. But these guys, it, the interesting thing is you can really tell both of these men are very smart and they're very calculated with everything that they do. I'm surprised that a lot of people were upset with how this fight turned out simply because I feel like this is what happens when you put two counterfighters together. Let's be clear. Both Willie and Thompson are counterfighters. They're counterfighters in different ways. Thompson is more a, of a counter striker who uses, I mean, he uses his space and his and his karate abilities to kick guy to keep guys completely off of them. Um, oh, excuse me, off of him. And as he posts them with shots and works his way towards the finish, we've seen that happen so many times at this point in his UFC run. Woodley, on the other hand, is more of a of a counterpuncher where he makes you throw and then he counters with the intention of knocking you out with one shot. We saw it against Dong Young Kim. We saw it against Josh Koshtek. We saw it against uh, Robbie Lawler. We've seen it so many times in a row, and it's just something um, so so not something that's, that can be frustrating to watch when he's not dealing with someone who is going to play his game. And this is interesting here because Counterfighters, the thing that makes them so dangerous is that they, if they are fighting someone who is going to be threatening, someone who is advancing, someone who's aggressive, then counterfighters usually look great. Look back at, um, but if, if, but before, if, if they are forced to chase, that's when they look bad. I'm gonna point out Holly Holm. You know, her last three, two of her last three fights were against counter strikers, and Holm, who is a counter striker herself, was forced to. Uh, start the action, and it failed her both times. Both times grossly. So if you look at Willie and Thompson, the same thing can be said here. And what's so in another interesting thing about this fight to me is that in their first fight, UFC 205, uh, Thompson was definitely more aggressive. And he was so aggressive that 
he created those two openings, the one that led to Tyron's takedown and that nasty cut, and then the other that led to uh, the him getting dropped and almost finished. And when you remove that from the equation, what you get in return is a fight that was a lot like what we see today. That doesn't necessarily say that neither one of these guys, I don't, I don't believe in saying someone's fighting safe. I don't believe in, in calling someone cautious or whatever it may be. I don't believe in, I don't believe in going that route. I believe in strategy, strategy in fighting because this is, I had, I was having a conversation with someone on the internet, unfortunately, and they like to use the term fade or get faded. Meaning you go in there, either you knock somebody out or you get knocked out. And that's easy for spectators to say. That's easy for people who train to say, but what's un what the unfortunate truth is that these guys are professional athletes who are fighting for a purpose. They're fighting for a way to provide for themselves and in Woodley's case, for his family. So for him to go in there and throw caution to the wind, yeah, that may excite the fans, but at the end of the day, it doesn't guarantee money in his paycheck or in his pocket. So seeing him fight the way he did on Saturday did not surprise me. Same thing with Thompson. Telling Thompson, oh, you need to go in there, you need to be more aggressive, it's going to end up in the same way it did the first time around, and he gets himself knocked out, that, or he gets himself dropped. So I get why guys are stressed out and why this situation isn't the way it was. So, yes, um, so, yes, let's go in and uh, discuss about that. What happens next? Now we have a champion that I want to go ahead and say fans, not only are fans not the most invested and willing to get behind, whether it be for his controversial statements or less than spectacular fights, but you also have a promotion that is growing, is almost seeming more and more openly opposed to him. Uh, the issue being that if you look at the way this fight was promoted, Almost every time, especially in the last two, maybe three weeks, anytime UFC President Dana White was talking about Tyron Woodley, he was talking about him in a way, calling him a drama queen, saying that he fought to a draw, that he didn't do enough. And you don't want to see a situation where your number one... The, a promoter is supposed to be the number one fan of all of their fighters, in a sense, because it's their job to promote them. It's their job to make me, as a consumer, interested and want to see why this guy fight, why this guy is going to be fighting. Dana White doesn't do that for Woodley. Now, you may say that he's being real, he's being honest. That's one thing, but he's hurting, he is playing a part in hurting Woodley's brand. Yes, Tyron, the way he voices his concerns about various things can be distasteful to some people and that's one thing but the promotion itself 
should not play a part in that. Instead, what should occur is like, I understand if, if White may not be the biggest fan of Tyron Woolley, I get it. But instead, what should occur is that there needs to be a happy medium. And right now, we're not seeing that. And I understand why Tyron Woolley is upset about the situation. I understand why he is uh, distraught about what's going on. And it's going to be interesting to see what goes forward because now he's promising to be as difficult as possible. And that's going to be a real struggle for the UFC across the board because right now they need their champions and they need their champions to be stars because they don't have a guaranteed two and three million pay-per-view guy by guy outside of Conor McGregor. I mean, John Jones is going to make his return at some point in time. We don't know what type of numbers he's going to do. Uh, who else do they have? Ronda Rousey isn't walking back through that door. She's not coming back. So what's really going to um, go on? So like, you really just can't see. I really can't, you really just can't see uh, this, this situation correcting itself immediately. But yeah, with that being said, Willie is still the champion, uh, holding that, that title nicely. Uh, Steven Thompson has now lost in two bids to take the title. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with him next. It'll be real difficult for them to keep him in that position as number one contender, especially when you have one Damian Maya sitting here getting ready. Um, Damian Maya should be ready to go. He shouldn't be booked in this fight with... Um, Jorge Masvidal, while that is a great and interesting fight, he should not be booked in that fight with Masvidal because now, and that fight is two months away. So hypothetically, we could be looking at five months, five to six months before the uh, welterweight title is defended. And that and that's either way. If they go with Jorge, if he wins, or if they go with... Um, Damian Maya, if he wins. So I really hope that they do find a way to scrap that bout and uh, get Damian Maya and Tyron Willie in the cage together. It's a compelling fight to me. It's a it's a compelling fight to me. It's a dangerous fight for both men. Uh, Willie has defensive wrestling that can maybe avoid one, two takedowns or enough of time to allow him to land shots on Maya. But if Maya gets the fight to the ground, man, who can he not submit? He's submitting everybody right now. So there really isn't um, any safety in in that situation at all. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting style matchup to me, and I would like to see it. But right now, we're in a situation where we don't really know what the UFC can do with either man. And it's yet another division that's kind of tied up at a point where there's no clear direction going forward. So it's really, I really understand the frustration that fans and the promotion itself is beginning to get with this champions. But this is a situation that they kind of created on their own with Tyron Woolley. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the near future with both men.
So the next biggest, uh, I guess, talking point out of UFC 209 is the fact that the co-main event, the real co-main event that everybody wanted to see uh, between Khabib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson didn't happen. And this is the third time in a row that this fight has, has been canceled. And it has a huge impact for both men. The first time it was canceled because Khabib hurt his knee. The second time it canceled, I think it was because Tony Ferguson, Tony, Tony Ferguson got injured. And then this time it was because of Khabib unable to make weight. So it almost seems like it's destined for this fight never to occur. It's probably one of the, I hope that we get to see at some point in time. But not only does it impact both of their their careers, but it greatly impacts the lightweight division as a whole, too. And I want to talk about that later on in the show. But now that, you know, Ferguson got ready for a full camp and he's saying that he wants Conor McGregor or no one else. And I understand that because he's won, I think it's like seven fights in a row at this point, seven, eight fights, maybe more. I may be wrong, but he's won well, well more than uh, enough to be willing to demand a title shot. So there's that. Then there is as a what what do you do with uh Habib? What do you do with him? Do you keep giving him the opportunity to be in these big big name matchups and hope that he shows up? Or do you uh, just kind of let him sit to the wayside and let this undefeated, great, talented fighter just kind of go to waste? But uh, Shawan, I hear that you just joined me. How are you doing there, sir? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Doing great, man. Doing good as always. We are a few minutes into the show. We just talked about um, Woodley and Thompson. I'm sure you have a lot to add to that conversation, though, correct? Uh, yeah, I got a few things. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Have at it. Well, as as we discussed last last week when we talked to um, Mr. Wright before he came on, I said that Woodley is a good fighter. He's a very smart fighter, very tricky fighter, but he's limited in the skills that he can showcase consistently throughout a fight, first round through third round, first round through fifth round. And I think that fight on Saturday night just showcased that point to us to the world once again. I mean, essentially, it was essentially the same fight. I mean, Thompson made some adjustments, so Woodley didn't have as many big spots, but Woodley pretty much did the same thing he did the first fight. He had a takedown later in the fight instead of the opening round. He kind of tried to pressure a little bit and picked his spots for big counters. When he got pressured by Thompson, he backed straight up as usual to the fence and looked for opportunities to counter Thompson when he was coming off of it. I mean, pretty much, as I said before, Wood, as good as Willie is athletically and as smart as he is, the tools he feels comfortable using and the skills he feels comfortable using in a real fight, they're not that diverse. And that's why people constantly consider him an under, consider him beatable, consider him to a certain degree boring, and consider him to be the underdog in these fights because you see a guy who essentially uses maybe 50, 50% at best of, of his artillery of the skills he says that he has. And you have to assume that somebody else using 100% is gonna have the advantage at some point or another. And that's what happened in the fight. You were asking me who would make the most changes. I said Woodley's pretty much incapable of fighting any better than he did the first fight. And he didn't, he didn't fight any better than he did the first fight. The person who fought worse was Steven Thompson. Steven Thompson, because he, had, he lost that first round so big, he had a little bit more volume. He would push Woodley back. He looked to more counter more actively. In this fight, it seemed like Thompson was 
trying not to get caught with anything big, trying not to get taken down. He was essentially trying not to get hit or punished for a shot. And as a result, didn't put out nearly enough volume that he would have needed to win because all he needed was a couple good flurries every round and he would have won the fight. He just wasn't busy enough because he was trying to avoid giving Woodley one of those big spots in the fight like he did in the first fight. And he ended up giving it to him anyways when he got that takedown. I don't know if it was the third round or the fourth round. He got the takedown and started working him over. And in the last round, even though he was out working Woodley, Woodley had that last flurry where he dropped him and then was swarming on him towards the end of the fight. And that's what determined the fight. That's what basically got him. Let's talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. Because you, you brought up a very good point, something that I've been trying to put, I've been trying to put in people's minds, but they haven't, they don't want to just grasp it. Um, the idea of, oh, this is Willie's fault, this is Willie's fault, this is Willie's fault. I'm like, okay, well, let's look at this. Because the instances that made the first fight so uh, compelling whether it be that that takedown that allowed Willie to ground and pound, or when he when Willie dropped Thompson and almost finished him, those were both off of counters of Thompson being aggressive. So Thompson, being the smart, intelligent fighter he is, says, "I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to make that mistake again." And that's why we got the fight we got. I think that's one of the big reasons why we got the fight we got because both of these guys are counter fighters who, and they're not, and they're very smart too, very very highly intelligent. So they're not going to go in there and they're not going to be wild and make a mistake like like everyone kind of seems like everyone wants them to do. That's not their job. Their job is to go in there and, and win. So when you take out Thompson's aggression that created those exciting spots in the fight at UFC 205, I'm not surprised that we got this outcome at UFC 209. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's what I was that's what I was kind of hinting at. And I don't want to make it seem like I'm attacking Woodley. People think I'm they think I'm attacking him. I, I'm. I'm taking away from the quality of his wins or the quality of his skills. That's not what I'm here to do, but I have to call it straight down the line. Woodley can be exciting, but he's only exciting when you force him to be exciting or you give him huge opportunities. He's the sort of guy whose whole offense is created based off of what you do. All the big offense he scores, all the big takedowns he has, is all depending on what kind of mistakes you make. If you're a fighter who doesn't make a lot of mistakes, guess what? Um, Tyron Woodley isn't going to get a lot of work done when he fought Robbie Lawler. Only reason he beat Lawler is because Lawler made a mistake. Lawler wasn't working his jab. Lawler wasn't cutting angles. Lawler wasn't fainting, and Lawler bit off his feint, and and um, Woodley just ran through him with a big shot. Early on when he fought Stephen Thompson the first time, Stephen Thompson was throwing those low kicks. Woodley caught it, encountered big, got that takedown, and then pounded him, pounded him. And same thing when he caught him late in that fight. Woodley's whole game plan, he's hes like a, a welterweight Ricardo Lamas. Lamas is a fighter whose whole offense is based on you making a mistake. If you can fight a clean fight, if you can fight smart and fight discipline, Lamont, he's never going to get off. He's never going to be able to do any real consistent damage to you. You have to come in a little bit wide open, light wide open or take chances or, or push the pace. And that's when he's going to score. It's like you said, it's the same thing with Woodley. Woodley does not have the ability to consistently initiate offense. But luckily for him, He's the champion, so he really doesn't have to come out there and initiate offense unless somebody gets a big lead on him or somebody scores big on him, then he's forced to initiate. But since he's a champion and people go by the, you have to take the belt from him, he's got the option of not having to press. People have to come to him. People have to come get the belt. All he has to do is sit back and wait for them to give him the opening because he has fight-ending power. Any opening you give him, might that might be it. Ask Robbie Lawler. Ask, ask um, Jay Haran. 
Ask Josh Koshche. Guys who got yeah. one taste of that power, and it was lights out for him. And it and it out. is part of it is partly what it is Thompson's fault. I don't blame Thompson because when I talk to fighters, I tell them it's not your job to be exciting. It's not your job to be entertaining. It's your job to win and take as little amount of damage as possible. But somebody in Thompson's corner should have told him, look, this fight is going to go to the judges and you're not going to win it. You, you got to draw barely last time. You're going to have to do something. You're going to have to put some kind of stamp on this fight because when there's very little offense in a fight, that means any moment, any big spot of offense is going to win that person around. Thompson had busy moments of offense, but he never had that big moment where he rocked Woodley or he pushed Hoodley, Woodley back or he put off, put a combination on him, which drew the judge's eyes. Basically, him and Woodley were neck and neck, and Woodley did just a little bit more. And somebody in Thompson's corner should have told him, hey, now's the time you're going to have to take a chance. You might get knocked out. You might get hurt. But that's the only chance you have to win this title. It's too close. You're not doing enough, and he's had the bigger moments in the fight. You need to go get him. That's at a certain point. There's no technique talk. There's you want the belt. He's got it. You got to go take it from him. There's no sort of technical advice you can give that person because at that point it's a matter of desire, biting down on your mouth guard, going across the cage and doing what you have to do and take and t- taking the consequences as a result. And Thompson never did that. He stayed, he much like Woodley stayed disciplined, stayed smart, stayed conservative. And unfortunately he paid the price. You know something that's interesting because when I started this conversation, I started talking about the idea of of um, Woodley and Thompson both being counter fighters and working to you know, and and they're both being counter fighters and they're both being you know, I don't want to say cautious, but cautious in a sense to where you know they're trying to protect themselves and not get killed. But you just brought up a very good point in relation to Holly Holm. Steven Thompson had to have some idea that this fight was either close or he could be down going in, into the fifth round. And if you look at the way he fought, he was he was working, but he wasn't doing enough that would have made it it made it a clear cut decision in his um, corner. Compare that to the way Misha Tate fought the last round against Holly Holm. She went out there with the idea of either, and she said this, either she's going to get knocked out or she's going to finish the fight. And look what happened. Exactly. exactly. That, that's the point I was making. Woodley fought the same fight, essentially fought the same fight he fought the first fight. That got him a draw. At worst, that would have gotten him a draw. If everything, if he fought the exact same fight and Thompson fought the exact same fight, uh, Thompson, the onus was on Thompson to make adjustments because he's the one who could not get the bell. He basically just did enough to make it controversial again. It was on him to make the adjustment. And throughout, I can understand if you want to play it safe throughout the fight and pick your spots and control it. But like after that takedown, he had to have known, look, I'm behind on the cards. You have to make something happen. And like Misha said, it's either, you're either going to be carried out or you're going to be carried, you're going to be carried on the stretcher or you're going to be carried out on someone's shoulders. You make the choice. I've never fought before. So it's easy for me to say that. But the reason it's easy for me to say that is because it's a fact. And it, and I can't believe that on some level, Thompson isn't going to look back and feel bad about this because all he did was enough to make it controversial. And it was the onus was on him. He needed to get that belt. He already knew that that kind of fight was going to get Woodley a draw at worst. At worst, Woodley was going to get a draw. At best, he was going to get a win. It was on Thompson to go out there and take it. Even if it means fighting sloppy, even if it means getting wild, sometimes it's not about skill. It's not about strategies. It's about how bad you want it. And Thompson didn't seem like he wanted bad enough. I'm not saying he didn't. 
but his performance in the cage says that deep down he didn't want it to fight for it. He was willing to compete for it, but he didn't fight for it. When Misha fought, when Misha Tate fought, she was she wasn't competing in MMA. She was fighting MMA. Even Ronda Rousey was fighting MMA. She wasn't competing. Stephen Thompson was competing throughout that fight, and in that last round he needed to fight, and he did not. Woodley fought, he didn't, and I'm not. And even even though I think some of the onus is on Woodley, I only think it's on him from the instance of. It's not even. I don't think it's on him from that instance. I look at it from the technical point of view, and I just wanted to, to highlight that when I was on Twitter, I was like, "Hey, MMA ratings called this. We called this straight up. I told you it was going to happen. He can. Woodley can tell you about all the wrestling. I can do this. He can't do it. If he could have dominated wrestling for five rounds, he would have done it. Why didn't he do it? He knows. He knows. He knows Thompson can't get him off him. He's not strong enough. He knows his guard work's not good enough. Why didn't you just dominate him with wrestling for five rounds? Because you can't do it. Why didn't you put the pressure on him? Well, I don't know why I didn't. I know why you didn't, because you can't maintain that pace. And when you get tired, if he starts firing back, as my good friend Andrew Pearson, another MMA media member, and me have been discussed, his exits are terrible. He doesn't exit on angles. He comes in and exits on straight lines. And if he gets too tired from attempting takedowns or he gets too tired from pressuring, he won't have the speed in reaction to defend kicks or to defend kicks and punches or take them well enough where he won't get knocked down trapped on the cage and finish he knows he can't do it mentally there's something in his head that keeps him from doing it so he uh, he fights accordingly he has technical limitations that hurt his ability to be exciting and hurt his ability to be effective past a certain point he's an efficient fighter he's not dynamic he's efficient he's dynamic in spots and i have nothing against him but i call that last week when we used to talk about the fight months ago i said the same thing willie's only got this this and this and this was another example of when he can't dominate someone physically you see the holes and limitations in his game. And he says there aren't any, but this is twice in a row. We've seen him hit hit the wall and not be able to do anything with somebody who doesn't give him wide open opportunities to score. And that's the only point I had against him. He doesn't have a good enough game to force openings. He doesn't have a good enough game to cut the cage off, to pressure. He doesn't even have a good enough game to backtrack in a straight line and a half, take a half step back and then come right back for the counter. He goes all the way to the cage and then counters. If he was really working on his craft, he could cut an angle and walk you right into a hook. He could take that half step, hard half step, come right down the pipe with a right hand and ice you. He can't do that. You might know so let me ask you this, man. What do you do with either one of these guys? Now you have you have a champion that no one likes, for lack of a better term. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on the record and say no one likes him, but let's just play devil's advocate. You have a, a champion that's very hard to get behind for some people, and you have a challenger who Dana White clearly wants to be champion. Clearly. I mean, he, he said that Thompson has won this fight. I think he said it both times now. Clearly, he wants Steven Thompson to be champion. I get that. I understand it. But after two lo- after basically two losses, what do you do with him? You can't Am put I- him right back in a, in a... And then you have Damian Maya, another guy that is every bit the champion's champion. A... A full embodiment of the of the positive aspects of martial arts, and they don't want him to be a champion. So, what do you do with this guy, and what do you do with this whole weight class? Well, in in my perspective, it's not that they don't want they want Stephen Thompson to be champion. They just don't want Tyron Woodley to be champion. There's a difference. It, they could be anybody except for Tyron Woodley because I don't dislike this dude. He's a good guy, but even that good, responsible, social guy he is. He doesn't even appeal to that demographic. He can't bring anybody in, and they're in the 
they're in the business of making money, especially now that they've been bought out. They're trying to make their money back. They don't care about quality. They don't care about how you carry yourself unless it somehow turns into pay-per-view buys or ratings. If you can do that, they will treat you like a king. Tyron Woodley can't, for whatever reason, racial, social, financial, I don't know. He can't do that. And that's what hurts him. Stephen Thompson, as good as he is, his limitations have been exposed again. There's a blueprint for Stephen Thompson now. Now you know that you can only put him in fights with certain kinds of people because other types of guys, more well-rounded and patient and deliberate guys, he can't be exciting against. And you know what? We should have seen this coming because against Rory, Rory McDonald, a guy who has a bigger tool set, toolbox than Woodley, but who was equally patient and controlled in his attacks, that fight wasn't particularly exciting either, if you think about it. It was competitive. It was it was more exciting than Woodley and Thompson, but that fight wasn't a barn burner. That wasn't back and forth action and wild swings. It was measured, controlled offense, defense, and counters. So we should have we should have known that once he gets to a guy with a certain skill level who doesn't make mistakes, he's not dynamic. He's not a dynamic finisher. He's not a dynamic offensive fighter. He's a careful, deliberate, safety first, strategical fighter. And that's been exposed. Now for the division. Maya stuck. They don't. It's clear they don't like him. I don't know why they don't like him, but they don't like him. They don't want him. They don't think he draws. They don't think he's an interest. And to be fair, I don't know that he's a big star in Brazil either. I'm not. Once again, it could be a racial thing. It could be a social thing. But the fact of the matter is, even in Brazil, he's not a big star. He's not a big star here. They want stars. Whoever is going to generate money for them, they are going to get behind and push and give multiple opportunities. Are you talking about Maya now? Yes, Damian Maya. He he's not a star anywhere. He's not a star in Brazil. He's not a star in the U.S. He might deserve it. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Is he really not a star in Brazil? When? When? Because I was kind of shocked with the way that um, what's her name, Chris Cyborg, got a huge following. Do you think that Maya's not a, a, a star there? Because that's what I've heard in the past. Um, and when it comes to, yeah. I don't know, because I don't know if he's ever gotten that opportunity to be. I, I'd have to, I'd have to see it though. That that's that's my thing. Because, like, you know Anderson's a huge star. You know Vitor Belfort's a huge star. You know the Noguera brothers were huge stars. True. Maybe he is. But I, I don't, I've never heard anything about Maya being such a – even Aldo. I've never heard anything about Maya being a huge star in Brazil. I don't – he's as far as I know, he's a, he's as popular as Amanda Nunes, which isn't very popular. And the worst part is he's a very – he's an honorable martial artist who just wants to fight and compete and be the best. And that is great. As a martial artist, I admire that. As a martial artist, I'm sure you admire it. Dude, he could but be someone's a, hero. Like he, he, he. I hate to say it. I'm not. I'm not one who's a fan of saying, "Oh, this guy's my hero. This guy's my hero." But if you listen to Damian Maya talk and the way he behaves and how he performs in the cage, he could legit be someone's hero. He could be, but the question is: Is he enough of a hero for them to put their money down? Is he a guy you look up to from a distance, or is the guy you look up to to the fact that you're going to spend that money? There's lots of. It's like they say. There's lots of good people in the world, but they never get the attention. Who do we focus on? Superstar, yeah. people who are super successful, people who make lots of money. The dad who, the single mother who's a great mom, TV. Because she's doing what she's supposed to and nobody cares. They, they want to meet Beyonce. They don't want to meet the single mom who raised four kids by herself and put herself through college. Nobody cares about it. the dad who works four jobs to support his sixth wife, his sick wife and his three kids. His six wives? You don't want to meet six wives? Excuse me. His sick wife and his... <laughs> They don't want to meet him. Who do they want to meet? They want to meet Future. Why? Because Future's a rapper. Nobody cares about the good quality person. That doesn't sell. And WME is in the business of selling. And if you don't sell, you are not getting the rub from them. You are not getting the push. And it's that way in every aspect of life. Business, 
pro wrestling, boxing, football. It's all about the sexy matchup. It's all about the big names. It's all about bringing money in. And Damian Maya has never done that, and he still does not do that. All those hardcore fans, they'll watch the UFC anywhere. They're not watching just for Damian Maya. Prove a point. Boycott UFC until Damian Maya gets a title shot. And have them lose out on about 50,000 or 100,000 buys. That'll make a stance, but ain't nobody going to do that because nobody's that invested in Damian Maya. That's some good, that's some um, interesting, interesting points you're making there. Interesting points you're making there. Let's talk about two guys that I believe that a lot of people are invested in, and that's Khabib Nurmagomedov and Tony Ferguson. I was talking about them uh, right when you joined us today. What is this fight ever going to happen? This is the third time that. And it's almost like we're getting teased a little bit more every time. Now we got guys down there. They're doing open workouts. They're posing for the camera. One guy weighs in. The other guy weighs in. Or, or he doesn't even make it to the scale. Fights off. Well, you know something? You know, you remember when um, Conor McGregor fought um, Eddie Alvarez, right? And he beat him? And? But you remember when Conor McGregor fought Eddie Alvarez in New York and he beat him, right? Yeah. And everybody talked about, well, Connor, are you going to face Khabib next? Are you going to face Khabib? And a lot of people said Connor was ducking him because Connor said, I need to be guaranteed that he's going to show up. He's a pullout merchant. He's undependable. You can depend on me. I can be injured. I can be hurt. I can be take a short notice fight. I will be there, and I'm there every single time. This guy isn't. And, and he said before, he goes, you're going to see. He's going to be in a big spot. He's not going to show up in the, in the division, and the organization is going to be he all messed up as a, as a result. And people were getting on him. And on Twitter, I said, it's a fact. Look at his record. He's worse than Aldo about pulling out fights. And so he gets a big fight. He gets the fight he wanted. He gets the fight he demanded for the title that he wanted. And and I'm not blaming him. Maybe something went wrong. But the fact is, he wasn't there to compete once again. So now... It, and, and what makes it so bad with this situation here is that it was, it was a weight cut issue. If it was a slip and fall in the shower... Or if it was he was if it was some other type of like he got hurt during his open workout or something like that, or who was the guy who um, got hurt walking out to the cage? I can't remember who that was. But, was that um, Kevin say it again. Was that Kevin Randleman all those years ago? I think it was someone who was about to fight Kevin Randleman, or maybe it was oh, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. That 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 happened too. Yeah, but still, it, like, if it was one of those situations, it would be okay. But this guy is not making weight. And it's like, yo, did you not know you had to make weight? Did you not know that was expected of you? What exactly happened? Yeah, the, it, you know, the, the worst thing about this is, and I know it's probably not their fault because they don't have a weight-making issue. But once again, you know you know what camp he's from. The camp that's known for people getting injured and not showing up for fights, a.k.a. So now they now first you have guys who can't make do camps healthy. Now you got guys who can't even make weight now. Just another black mark on them, and it's hard moving forward. Thing because making weight should be the easiest thing about. You should know that. You should you should have an idea of what's going on. Like Dana White said, he could have called somebody, let people know what's going on. He didn't do that. He he went on he he went off on his own. And maybe Dana White's lying because he's not the most honest person all the time. But if he, what he's saying is true, Khabib didn't take the necessary steps to make sure the fight happened. And as a result, he cost the UFC a, a huge buy. I mean, people were paying, coming in to see that fight. We knew that Thompson Woodley wasn't going to be exciting. Stephen Wright said last week, he said the money fight that everybody wants to see is Khabib and Tony. That's going to be the exciting fight. Woodley, Thompson is going to be, eh, we'll see what happens. And that's what people came in to see, the best lightweight ma matchup in the history of mixed martial arts. 
And here's what's so interesting about this now, man. Here's what, because I wrote about this because we have a pretty big lightweight matchup coming up this weekend. But this this division is beyond wide open now because they wanted they wanted to use two UFC two UFC two hundred nine to crown an, an interim champion. Now we don't have an interim champion. We have a champion who isn't talking about defending his title. Is instead talking about taking a fight with the retired boxer in another total venue on his own. So you have a division basically without a champion, without a title at this point in time. And now has left this division wide open and in a very bad state. Yeah, he single-handedly has upset the apple cart and set the UFC and the division back a huge step. They have no, like you said, they have no champion. They don't even have the interim champion. Now the guy who's supposed to fight for the title is saying, I don't want to fight anybody except... He says he doesn't want to fight Khabib now. He wants to only wait for Connor, which you, Connor McGregor you, you, isn't. Good. 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 Well, Connor, so Connor's not going to. Connor's not going to come back just for him because this guy doesn't generate any money. He benefits from fighting Connor. Connor does not benefit from fighting him. He does nothing for Connor McGregor to fight Tony Ferguson. Why would he fight him? Only person who's going to get the red panty night is Tony Ferguson. It's just another day at the office for Connor McGregor. And so hey, now you, you got everybody in the. Something I was laughing about. Uh, thinking about this, man. That announcement of the um, Eddie Alvarez Dustin Poirier fight for UFC 211. Don't be surprised if that comes up for an in a interim title. Do not be surprised if at some point the decision is made. We're going to create a new title with these two men here. Yeah, they're they're going they're going to have to do something because now that it, now it's like and Eddie Alvarez is is good and happy. It, it, he was bragging about his. It was it a seven-figure payday he was bragging about, saying he he got paid to fight Conor McGregor. So uh, now now everybody in the division and Dana White is getting frustrated. WME is getting frustrated because now everybody's talking money fights. Everybody wants to be in a big fight. And people are trying to hedge their bets so they can get in the best position to get paid. Nobody's just trying to fight anymore. That that time in MMA is gone. Tony Ferguson wants to fight Connor, not because he's the best, because he doesn't think Connor's the best. He thinks Khabib's better, but Khabib, Khabib's not going to get him paid. Nick, Nate Diaz doesn't want to come back to fight Eddie Alvarez. Why? Because fighting Eddie Alvarez does not pay enough. Eddie Alvarez really doesn't have to do anything except sit back for a while, but he's probably figured out the same thing you figured out. He's got a clear he's got a clear line to the title belt. He might actually get an interim title if he plays his cards right and can beat Poirier. Him and Poirier are in the position where they can gain – take huge steps forwards if they win this fight. Everybody else is just scrambling position or, or getting a position to make more money. Alvarez already got paid, so now he's kind of like, well, I'll do whatever I want. I already got my million dollars. So now I can just go and, and pick the fights I, I need to get to get to the title or get the belt back around my waist again. And even if Eddie Alvarez gets the belt back around his waist, what happens then? You're going to have him rematch Connor Because Tony Ferguson said he wants Connor. So, But who's Connor going to go after? The guy he already knocked out for the belt? To make to fight for the unified title, or is he going to fight Tony Ferguson? Exactly. Or is he going to fight Tony Ferguson? I think Tony Ferguson is probably the most, one of the more dangerous fights for him in that division as a whole. Um, so much intrigue now at 155, and it's kind of, it's not like it's intrigue of, oh, who's the next big, big title challenger? Who's the next big fight? It's more like, we have no idea what's going to happen with this group. It's the, in, it's the intrigue of how is the UFC going to fix this huge mess that's been created by by the, by Connor and by Khabib, by not making weight. It's not it's not even a, it's not an intrigue of who's gonna beat who the technical and strategical matchup. It's a it's a question of who's gonna be the guy 
who's they're, they're going to put a title on. How are they going to fix this? How are they going to spin this? Because they, right now, they're losing on every level. Their champion does not want to fight for them because they won't pay him enough. He wants to fight Mayweather because Mayweather fighting Mayweather pays more than fighting the UFC. And everybody else who's who's a contender for the t- the championship, they want to get more money too. They're like, I ain't doing this either. I'm following his lead. I ain't doing this either. You got to pay me. Yep, those are all clear as day points there, man. So let me ask. So let's let's move forward. Let's let's kind of end that conversation there with them because like there's so much. It's messy, as some of my friends may call it. We're gonna look at at another guy who's at an interesting point in his career, Rashad Evans. You know, he lost about to Daniel Kelly on um, Saturday, and now it's kind of like, well, maybe it is time for former champions to call it a career because that was. I was watching that fight and it was really like, ugh, like he just doesn't look like he can get off anymore. And I hate to use that term, get off in that way, in that way, but he just couldn't look like, he really looked like he just couldn't pull the trigger at any point in time during that fight. It was was frustrating because I have to admit, Rashad at 85, that dude looked good. He looked ripped. He looked like healthy. He looked like he was, he was about to put on a performance he went out there, and, and I won't say that he looked terrible, but he didn't look like BJ Penn, like, out of sorts and just bad. But then again, he wasn't facing an athlete of the level of Yair Rodriguez. But he looked, he looked good. He looked, he looked like he was doing what he wanted to do. But like you said, he didn't have that extra horsepower. He didn't have that extra kick. He was like a half second off, a half second too soon, a half second too late. And the worst thing about Rashad is, as experienced as he is, skills failed over the years, he's been a fighter who's laid down his athleticism a little bit a little bit more than his actual technical acumen his footwork's never been as crisp or sharp as people have made it out to be he's a little he's a little bit telegraphed with his feints and his strikes while sharp he's really he's really a counter puncher he's not a, you won't ever see him lead with combinations he's either trying to counter your movement try to set a trap to counter your, your movement when you're aggressive or he's trying to counter your strikes he's not really a guy who who, who wins exchanges he's not a guy who can just work a jab and pick you apart from distance He's really an essentially an explosive counter guy. He's he's got a little bit of that Tyron Woodley in him, and he he did he struggles to consistently initiate offense or consistently maintain offense. And if you look at him in his prime, a lot of his biggest knockouts all come off of counters. A lot of his biggest takedowns all come off of counters. He does not blow through people. He doesn't cut the cage off. He doesn't pressure you. He kind of fakes, hops back and forth, sets a trap, and then when you come in, he counters you big. There's one two mm-hmm. critical two. And if you fight a disciplined fight and you, and you have sneaky setups and you can apply deliberate pressure to him, you'll beat him. Because the way Daniel Kelly beat him is the same way um, Nogueira's uh, Minotauro beat him when he fought him. It was like a little pick and peck fight back and forth. Rashad couldn't really get off. And he was waiting for the guy to give him a big opening for him to counter. Either overcommit so he could land a big shot or overcommit so he can get a takedown. Give him Gave him a w- wide open lane to attack. So all Rashad could do is faint and try to throw strikes out there to score and try to get him, try to bait him into attacking so he could counter. And when that guy didn't bite on it, he had nothing. He ended up getting countered because he started getting impatient trying to initiate offense. And he's not nearly effect, nearly as effective when he has to initiate and carry the fight. When he does that, he gets hit a lot. He gets outworked and he gets pushed around. And you saw that again when he fought Noguera, that when he fought Noguera, and you saw the exact same thing in a slow paced fight, he got outworked, out hustled, manhandled a little bit and he lost a decision in a fight that where he had every physical advantage because even as slow as Rashad's gotten he's not in his prime he's still two times faster than Daniel Kelly maybe three times faster 
he just couldn't put it together. Yeah, and even if you saw like his setup shots, he was hitting high crotches. He was moving well. It just looked like he's like it just seemed like he didn't have it anymore. And it was definitely difficult. It was it was difficult to watch. And listening or reading his statement after a fight, where he was basically saying, "Yeah, he has to kind of like do some." Um, soul searching, for lack of a better term, uh, I think that we may have seen the last of Sugar Rashad Evans in the cage. Well, he's, you know, it's I can't even feel bad for him because I mean, he won the Ultimate Fighter is a heavyweight. He came out, he he was a top light heavyweight contender. He won he won a title. He challenged for another title. He's basically he's basically been top five, top ten in his division for like you know the, for the majority of his career. He's beaten the who's who of of quality guys, of Hall of Famers, um, top ranked fighters, and you know he's he's had his his analyst career kind of pick up. He's got a lot of skills. He's got a lot of talents. He's a good looking guy. He's got charm. He knows how to talk to people. He has a lot of avenues open for him. He's choosing to, to push fighting. He could even go into coaching. He has a lot of wisdom he could give people. As a fighter who depends on all his all his techniques and skills are attribute based, meaning that. They're dependent on him being the superior athlete, superior, more dynamic athlete. He's not a fundamentally sound technical fighter at this stage, and he hasn't been the majority of his career. So now that his skills are declining, all those holes are popping up. Think about Roy Jones when he lost a step or Muhammad Ali when he lost a step. That's what's happening to Rashad. Not saying he's on their level, but that's what's happening to him. So he doesn't have that that ace in the hole anymore. So now every fight is competitive. And when he faces better athletes, he just, he he's too tough to get just blown out. So he gets beat up and outworked. And so he needs a really, to, in my opinion, if he wants to continue fighting, it's his right. It's his career. He can do what he wants. But, but given some of the health and the strain it puts on, on your body, I ask myself is that if I know that I have no chance of becoming the best, when I also know that I, I have other lines of revenue, this isn't his only way to make money. If he, this is his only way to make money, it'd be different. But this, it's not his only way to make money. He has a lot of opportunities in front of him. He just has to go and take them. So I'd rather see him retire than see than see the C minus Rashad Evans. I mean, I, I'm a big Rashad fan. I, I don't want to see him struggling with Daniel Kelly. No offense to Daniel Kelly. He fought a very smart fight. He showed some evolution. He showed some subtle skills. He showed heart and determination. Congratulations to him. But we know the Rashad of two years ago, a healthy, sharp, explosive Rashad runs Daniel Kelly over. That doesn't go around. Yeah, that, that fight definitely um, does not end like that. Uh, when we when we think back to that version of Rashad Evans. So let's look at what else was um, kind of clear from this card. Uh, Lando Venata and David Timor. I think we saw two prospects, even though you know there's a winner and a loser. I think we saw two prospects that we can both get excited uh, excited to watch in the, in, in the near future. I was already excited for Venata. Uh, he's, he was my rookie of the year last year. But I think David Taymor, um, he might be someone worth watching in the near future because he really impressed a lot of people on Saturday. I... I... You've always been a big Venata fan, and, and you you've been steadfast. Now you're like, get him on the fast track, get him his opportunity. He's got talent, he's got ability, and I I agree with you on that. He's a very talented guy. The issues I've had with him, and I had with him in his, his first fight with Ferguson, are the same issues I have with him in this fight. A lot of what he does is based on mobility and creativity, and I think he knows fundamentals. But he focuses a lot on those that that big play offense. You know, like a, a football team, instead of throwing that little out pass or running the ball or a bubble screen, 
the only plays they do are 40 and 60 yard passes down the field. If it's not a big play, they don't they don't do it. And in that fight, you saw him, he could have done some more fundamentally. He could have worked the jab. He could have pressured and, and sought to aggressively counter. He could have just got on his toes and pot shot it outside. But a lot of the things he was doing were these kind of highlight reel dips, slips, and ducks and highlight reel type of offense. And it's great because he did score and he scored, scored some big damaging shots with him. But the problem is in scoring, having those big spots, every other spot, the rest of the fight, Taymor was outworking him and using a full MMA game. Um, Lando kind of got stuck in that being groovy and unorthodox, and that works. But you have to pick it, pick and choose the spots when you use that. Because when you become, people think being unorthodox makes you unpredictable. But when all you do is throw enough unorthodox techniques, you become very predictable. And that's what happened to him. Taymor knew it was coming, and you saw late in the fight, he was landing big shots on him. And Lando has a great chin. But he won't keep that chin taking shots like that, fight after fight after fight. He was getting hit, and he was getting hit big. And he showed great speed. He showed time. He showed agility. He showed body control. But as the fight kept on going, he had to work to defend takedowns and get back to his feet and get in these grappling exchanges and get away from Taymor's volume and roll and duck and block punches as well as take him clean. He started slowing down. And when he started slowing down, those defensive techni te techniques that he uses so well, those counters he uses so well, they weren't nearly as effective. Taymor essentially walked him down. It was a great fight, and I think Londo's got a big future in front of him. But Taymor exposed the, the fact that he can get stuck in one frame of mind, and he depends a little bit too much on his athleticism and being groovy rather than just doing the fundamentals and doing what it takes to win rounds and to win the fight. He won the, he won the fight in the fans because he had the biggest spots, but he didn't win the fight as far as consistently scoring and using the full array of skills. And it, and it cost him. And he was in a spot where he went another two fights. He could be in a top-ranked contender fight because he's popular and people want to people want to back him. He's the kind of guy WME and the UFC wants to get behind. But even if they want to get behind you, you have to win the fights. And and to a certain degree, I felt he gave that fight away because he could have used everything to make it more competitive. And he didn't. He just focused on striking and he focused on highlight reel counters and highlight reel leads. And that is a win you fight. If, you, if you're not knocking somebody out, those things don't win you fights. And and it didn't win him this one. I was impressed by Taymor. He's he's improved a lot. His um, volume and his consistency and his awareness improved a lot. Because at one point he would have got stuck fighting stupid too, but he didn't. He realized what Van, what Lando was doing. He realized Lando wanted to have a certain kind of fight, and he took advantage of that. He took full advantage of that. And by the time Lando started catching on, it was too late. He was behind on the cards, and and he was he didn't have any way to win except to get a knockout. Even more predictable. Yeah, it was definitely something worth watching and it was uh it was it was a interesting kind of um there's a there's a term in wrestling called the double switch where one the, the double turn actually is what it's called where one guy goes from bad guy to good guy another guy goes from good guy to bad guy basically and that's kind of what happened here it was a double turn um we, one guy went from being the prospect to now being the question mark and it went the other way around not saying that it's bad but uh i think that it's good to see guys bubble up to the top like this because now we have someone else to talk about in a sport where it tends to be we're kind of talking about the same few people you know the funniest thing about it is it, it was really all set up for, for lando because even even though he'd only had two fights in the ufc people were talking about him like he was already a contender what do you think about khabib you think he could beat connor you know i mean he, he essentially had to win one or two fights and we're talking about he's fighting for a top 10 ranking if not a top five ranking they were going to push him that hard 
And so then you, like you said, you had Tamar, Tamar, uh, who came in and he was considered a guy from Tuff. You know, we'll see what he can do. We he didn't really set the world on fire, and the opportunities he's is essentially this was supposed to be a showcase fight for Lando, and then like you said, it ends up turning around. Now you have a new prospect out there, and the prospect who was who looked so shiny and brand new all of a sudden doesn't look who he still looks like a prospect. He still looks like he has potential, but he doesn't look like he just has that unstoppable to be the champion sort of potential he had before that fight. Now that we've seen him in an extended fight, some of those flaws that maybe we excused in the Ferguson fight or other people excuse, cause I didn't excuse them. But there's some of those flaws on the Ferguson fight. Now you can't excuse them. It's not, it wasn't a, a short notice fight. He was prepared. It's just flaws he has in his game that he needs to address. So, I mean, he's still got talent. People still believe in him. But now he's got to compete with a, a brand new star who who uh, got a lot of attention for that fight. Yeah, it could. Um, it could. It, it was definitely a hell of a situation. Um, but I'm excited. I'm definitely excited for what uh, could be coming next in this division. And what's also was exciting was seeing Alistair Overham getting a big knockout win. Um, he straight slept. Uh, Mark Hunt and that heavyweight bout there. And, and all we need now is for Alistair Overeem to pass all of his post-fight drug tests because the last thing the UFC needs is for another Mark Hunt opponent to pop on a, a drug test. So let's hope for the better part there. But what do you do with the heavyweight division? Um, Allison and and Nganu seem to be headed on a one-track course for a uh, heavyweight fight. Does that excite you? It'd be a good fight. i I take Alistair and Nganu. i take Alistair... And um, Derek Lewis, I take Lewis Tingano, I take Verdum, and well, he's got. I think he's. What is he fighting for the title again? No, um, Sanders. I take Verdum, and I take Verdum and Ningano or Verdum and, and Lewis. I take any combination of those. Actually, in my opinion, even deep division, it's lining up now. As a result, you know, they they still have some very interesting fights. I don't I don't know if Mark Hunt can be involved anymore, uh, given how depending on how. Actually, I don't even know if Alistar can be. And whether he passed these tests, if they don't, then there's one fighter out of the mix already. But if everything goes through clean, then um, they've actually got some pretty exciting matches that would draw a lot of eyes. I mean, Alistair versus, versus Derek Lewis, a lot of people would pay money to see that fight. A lot of people would tune in to see that fight. Him versus Nganu, a lot of people would pay to see that fight. A lot of people would tune in to see that fight. So I, I think right now, at least in the, as far as the top five or six guys in the division, the uh, the heavyweight division isn't in, isn't in a bad spot. Their problem is after you pass the first four or five guys, you don't have anybody who's really world-class anymore. After that, it's guys who've been on three or four fight losing streaks or who are, who are winning and losing every other fight or guys who lack world-class talent and skill. So the, the, the issue is the same issue has always been heavyweight. Not that you have really good fights in the top five. After that, the talent level drops off. And so you don't really have as many good fights or even opportunities or even guys who can test the top guys. As far as the top five or top six, they got a lot of interesting matches up, matches up, matches to make moving forward. Yeah, they definitely really do there. Um, and I am, you know, I'm compelled to see what's next for uh, Overeem, just because it, it will be an interesting fight to see how, um, to see what he does, man. Because I figured, you know, he's one that that 
has always hung around as one of the top heavyweights in, in the sport. And now it's like, man, is he ever really going to get that UFC title? It's the one that's kind of eluded him to this point in his career. So let's see if he definitely uh, gets to that point again and gets another opportunity to win the belt. Uh, let's look at some other things that went down this past week. Before we get to talk about UFC 106 for this week, I want to look at Bellator 174 in the main event in that fight since we are definitely on International Women's Day. Uh, we had a main event that featured that featured Julia Budd and Marlos Conan, where Budd actually shocked me and stopped Conan to become the Bellator featherweight champion and also retired Marlos in doing so. So what are your thoughts on that main event and how that whole fight went down? I personally, though, I personally think that if, even if Marlis would have won, I think she would have retired anyways. I think this was going to be her last hurrah. I mean, after that fight with uh, Dufresne, where Dufresne didn't make weight, and then they lost, and then she lost. I think she she understood that the the time her time was coming to an end. Athletically, I said this before in the break in the breakdown. As good as she is, and experienced as she is, she's not a physical powerhouse. Even in her prime, she was getting she got manhandled by Misha Tate. Misha Tate is not anybody's physical manhandling anybody. And uh, she got manhandled by Misha Tate. She got manhandled by Liz Carmouche. She got manhandled by Cyborg. And essentially what it came down to in this fight was Julia, Julia Budd's physicality. It wasn't so much that she's outskilled her, but she's bigger, stronger, and more durable. That's something else I noticed about Kunin. She, her chin didn't seem to be there anymore. She didn't take or recover from shots nearly as well as she used to. She started getting hit and she started freezing up a little bit. She started reacting a little bit. She was always looking for those ground those ground exchanges because, in, in my opinion, the reason she looked for them is because she knows she can't hang in extended stand-up exchanges anymore. So she, she she forces fights to the ground, and that's that's hard to do when, when you're not a top-level athlete and you can't explode and get those throws or trips or double legs. And it's even harder because you're facing a bigger, stronger person. You can't make, an, make a mistake. And when she did, Julia Budd, physically overwhelmed her. I mean, she wasn't even really landing a lot clean when she was stopping her, but Kunin couldn't do anything. She didn't, she was in a bad position and she didn't have the physical horsepower explode out of the position. She just had to accept it and try to defend. And, um, you know, congratulations to Julia Budd. I'm sure it, I'm sure at one point she never thought she'd be a champion. And now she's a champion in a major division, major in a major division in a major organization. And some would say she's the best featherweight, featherweight champion in North America because to be quite honest she's already beaten she's if I recall correctly she's already beaten the champ the featherweight champ in the UFC uh let me look I know she's beating Misha Tate um I could have sworn she fought and beat uh, she beat Duran to me in in a MMA fight but uh, I maybe let me check I know she's beaten Misha Tate before um a second. So Julia, the jewel bud, she beat Conan. Um, she has. She beat her Strike Force Challenger 16 in 2011. And and unlike and unlike Durandami, who really hasn't improved her grappling, she hasn't. And last time she faced a person who could grapple worth a damn, she lost one-sidedly. Julia Bud's actually addressed her issue. She's become a better grappler. She's become a better defensive grappler. She's become a better wrestler. She's probably not as good a striker on the feet as Durandami, but but every other advantage you could possibly have, she already has over. And and she's only and to be quite honest, Julie Budd's been an active fighter with a more wins and losses against top is 
against the best opposition she, she could face she could face in featherweight and she's a more complete fighter marlis kunin is a more complete and incomparably accomplished fighter to holly home so actually the fight in bellator was what i consider to be the real women's featherweight championship fight because it had more, more experienced fighters had two legitimate featherweights and it had two girls who have all the skills necessary to compete in mma everybody knows holly home can't wrestle and she can't grapple everybody knows that i don't care what jackson says i've seen in real fights she can't do it they can tell me whatever she does in the training room i ain't seen it in a real fight misha tate took her down misha tate's not a world-class wrestler and um durant durant to me she's she can't really wrestle and she can't really grapple either so you have two one-note fighters aka strikers against two seasoned and experienced MMA fighters who also can strike. It's just a it was a better fight, it was a better matchup, and to me, their Bellator has the more legitimate champions in this division, in this women's division, in this at that weight. Yeah, it's um it's a pretty uh interesting situation. I just said something wrong there too. Um Bud didn't defeat Misha Tate. I'm thinking of um Caitlin Young, but but did lose to Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey at points in, in her career. So I just wanted to make sure I clarified that. Um, so let's move She's lucky on. she doesn't have to worry about Amanda Nunes moving up as long as the cyborg is there. So. We're going to talk about that. We're definitely going to talk about that because that's, that's, that's something that pissed me off um, this week. And, I, and, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. But let's talk about UFC Fight Night 106 first. And we got uh, Vitor Belfort and fighting Kelvin Gastelum. Does this fight interest you? What's the game for either one of, of these guys? Well, the game for Belfort seems to be he's either going to finish you in the first two minutes or he's just going to get taken down and beaten up. He, I mean, so what's, he's the game? what's the game for them? I don't, I don't know that I, for Belfort, if he wins, I mean, it's not over a real middleweight, but he hasn't won a fight in, what, two years now? He lost to Jacaray, Weidman. Who else did he lose to? Musasi. He's lost like three or four fights in a row. So just any, any sort of win would be good for him so over a blown up welterweight it's still a win he needs a win because he hasn't had one in years and um for gasolum uh, it, it's the same thing he needs he needs multiple wins he's only he hasn't made weight a lot of times he lost to tyron woodley when he had a chance to be considered for a title fight well he beat him i, I think that fight was more of a draw so he needs he needs wins that went over tim kennedy a lot of people consider that to be a very legit win because Kennedy was either ranked or close to being ranked, and he dominated him. So in a win over Belfort, even though it doesn't really mean anything in hardcore in hardcore facts, it's another win. It's two wins in the middleweight division, and it gives him a chance to fight a higher level opponent. So that's the only game. That's the game. That's the game from both guys. Another win to legitimize them. If he wins two fights in a row to middleweight. That kind of legitimizes him as a as a competent middleweight who has to be who has to be considered in discussions about the division at least as a fringe contender for Belfort he needs to win because if he gets to the point where you're getting beat up by blown up welterweights um, that's just not a good look and it maybe in my opinion he probably should have retired a year or two ago but he's he's still fighting so I guess it is what it is but uh, it's more of a risk for Belfort than it is a reward for him. I think if if it's a bad look, but everybody knows Gaslam's not a real, real welterweight, and everybody knows that in the first two minutes, Belfort's still dangerous. So if Belfort blows him out in the first two minutes, it's not a stretch. He's done that to a lot of guys.
But if he like, you know, beats him up over three rounds or five rounds, that, that's pretty that's gonna be a pretty big hit to Kevin Gastelum. It was considered a top contender a year ago, maybe two years ago. Yeah, definitely there. Um, let me see what else from this card kind of stands out for you. Is there is there anything else that kind of that catches your attention? To me, I wrote about the Benil Darius and Edson Barbosa fight, and I was joking around and I said it, man. This fight could be the winner. Of this fight can mess around and see themselves in an um, interim um, fight, interim title fight. Yeah, uh, yeah. If Barbosa goes in there and smokes uh, Darius, who, who's to say? And he's an exciting fighter. Who's to say he he's not put in that in that slot to fight a Tony Ferguson again or to fight in, in the winner of Eddie Alvarez, Dustin Poirier? I mean, hell, like even though him and Eddie Alvarez are teammates, who, who who's to say what, what what wouldn't happen there? Yeah, I mean, it, it'd be. I mean, there's there's given given the events of the past week. There's a very, there was a very high stakes these guys are competing for. Anybody who's got a who, who's a ranked lightweight who's got a fight coming up has to know they're only a fight or two away from a fight. And both of these guys have been on winning streaks and been on impressive winning streaks. So they're they're probably one fight away from a title shot. They win this fight, they're they'll be in an interim title fight in the next one. If Ferguson takes it, if he doesn't, then they'll. Matched them up probably against the winner of Alvarez and Poirier for an interim title fight. So this is a very, this is a this is a big spot for them. It's a big pressure situation because a loss here it doesn't take you totally out of contention, but in the immediate future it takes you out of contention. And being out of contention means you're one step further away from getting a shot at Conor McGregor, and that's the money fight in MMA. Everybody wants that fight, and you if you want it you have to put yourself in position by having a title fight. So this fight is a must win for both guys. It doesn't ruin their careers if they don't win it, but it, it's it's a pretty big setback like if they don't. Ask Rafael Desanos. He didn't lose a fight. He got injured, but that injury cost him millions of dollars. And losing a fight... Millions upon millions. Losing a fight at this spot, especially when the UFC is looking for a light, lightweight they can depend on, and they're going to have to promote because they don't know what's going to happen with McGregor, losing a fight in this spot it's going to cost you a lot of money and it's going to cost you a lot of opportunities moving forward. We know the division it's super deep. You lose one or two, you're at the back of the line. You could have won six or seven in a row. You lose one or two, you're, you're right all the way back to the end of the line, starting all over. All the way back to the end. And what else, is there anything else that stands out to you about UFC 106, UFC Fight Night 106? Um, I, t- I, did a, I did a piece about the the – Betch Kohea, Marion Renal fight. Not so much because it's it's such an important fight, but given the the, the topsy turvy nature of the bantamweight division, basically, you know, the rankings change pretty much every event. Somebody gets upset, something happens where the apple cart is turned upside down, and somebody's needed to move closer to a title shot almost immediately because the division is so thin. Betch Kohea is still a name in the division. You know, even though she hasn't beat like wor- a lot of really world-class opponents, she's a person who knows how to talk. She's a person who has a, a bit of a fan base. She's a person who knows how to build up a fight. And that's the kind of person the WME wants, which means that she's going to get opportunities if she can continue to win. For Renal, she's a person who came in on a hot streak, and she's kind of she's she's 39 years old. This is her last chance going and have a chance to even be considered a legitimate contender in the division. 
But so that that makes this fight important because Bantamweight is so thin and so many fights have already happened. They're looking for new matchups. They're looking for people who they can kind of build a promotion around as far as like a big fight coming up to get a big rating or to get a pay-per-view by. And that means everybody and win it in an impressive fashion is going to have an opportunity moving forward. And I think Betch Kohea is in the best position because we've already seen she knows how to sell a fight. She knows how to push a storyline. She knows how to play to the crammers. All she has to do is win. And she'll be right she'll, she'll be right in the mix, right back in the mix in Bantamweight. And that's, and that's scary. All she has to do is win. And someone who I think she does not have a win over a fighter with a winning record, she's definitely not out of the um, cut. No, she's she's not. It's, it's just such a it's such a thin division. It's like it's like heavyweight or middleweight. You win one or two fights, and you're 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 in title talks. And if you can sell a fight, you're that much closer. Ask Michael Bisping. That's why he got that rematch with Rockhold. They were trying to maximize the sales. They're trying to maximize the ratings. They know Bisping can talk a little bit. They know he's he'll generate bad blood with anybody. And people like either seeing him get knocked out or like seeing him talk trash and win. So they put him in a slide. And as a result. Now he's a champion. He didn't. He hadn't done anything to deserve a title shot. He hadn't beaten anybody to put him in position to title shot. But he had a bit of a name. He had won a fight, a pretty, a fairly big fight, and he knows how to sell a fight. He knows how to build a fight, and that's all it took. And that's very that's simple. It took there. That's definitely all it took. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the news stories from this week. Um, we already hinted at it. But Amanda Nunes now claims she doesn't want to move to 145 to face Cyborg. Now, when after Cyborg's drug test issues the first time came up and the bout between Holly Holm and Jermaine Deronomy was booked, Nunez was like, yep, I want to fight. I want to be the first woman, woman to hold two titles, the two-division champion. I want the belt. Then you saw the clearest Chris Cyborg is all of a sudden, no, I'm at home wrestling with my family. You know, I don't know what's next. I don't want to move to 145 to face Cyborg. I, I think uh, Valentina's next. Um, it, like, what happened? It really, someone should sit her down. This is why I can't have a major show because I would is sit it? her down and I would play both of those clips back to back and then just look at her. It's, it's, it's rightfully so. Like, and see, a lot of people, you're reasonable, so you you understand. I'm not trying to tear fighters down. I'm I'm just calling the points out as 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 they come up. And a lot of fighters say, "I'm a warrior. I want to get paid like a superstar. I want to get pushed like a superstar." But they don't want to take superstar chances, and they don't want to take superstar challenges. And that's why they don't get the money they want. And that's why they don't they don't they don't accomplish the things that they want. And that's why they don't get the acclaim they want because they're not doing what's what's going to get them the acclaim. They're doing things their way. And sometimes doing things your way isn't going to get you the results you want. She wants to be a big star. Imagine beating Ronda Rousey and Chris Cyborg. Even if you're just fighting at a featherweight, you beat Ronda Rousey. You beat the two baddest women in the history of women's MMA in the same calendar year. Do you know what that does for you as a, as a fighter? Do you know what kind of claim that stays for you? You officially become the baddest woman in the on the planet, you beat the she you beat becomes, the women. She becomes the greatest female mixed martial artist of, of all time. Yes, you be you become the good. All you have to do is beat one more great person. Now I understand Chris Cyborg is a beast. I understand the damage she does. I understand how 
how punishing and great a fighter she is. But the fact of the matter is, if your thing is to be the best, if, even if you're just saying, I want to get paid, how do you get paid? Facing the biggest challenges with the biggest cachet. Who has more cachet than, than Cyborg? More people want to see Cyborg fight. If you have Nunes and Cyborg fight on a pay-per-view, more than Holly Holm and Drain Aranami fighting for the title. I want to see that more. That'll that'll have I more mean, rage. And you said, you know, yeah, Cyborg hits hard. Cyborg has some pop. Well, shit, so does Amanda Nunez. She's broke. She's broken like at least three or four women's faces in, in her last few fights. She has pop too. I'll tell you this. It's the same thing I said when we first discussed this. All these girls keep saying, I want a chance to be in the UFC. Why don't they have a featherweight division? Why won't they let me fight at featherweight? Okay, we'll let you fight, but you have to fight Chris Cyborg. Uh, I don't really want to fight. That's not the fight for me. She's a cheater. You think, and I'm not, I understand that. I get the legitimacy of those points, but the fact of the matter is, this is the person standing between you and greatness. If you're a struggling fighter who can't get any opportunities, beating Chris Cyborg changes your life. Hell, if you even give her a competitive round, it changes your life. But they don't want to do it. Everybody, it's their dream to fight in the UFC. They'll fight anybody, anytime, until they say Chris Cyborg. And I thought Amanda Nunes was a a little bit better than that, but she's not. It makes me it, it makes me laugh because everybody said Ronda was the baddest girl in the world, and you know what? That can't be true because when Ronda was on top, every single person wanted a piece of her. Since Chris Cyborg's name, unless it's at a catchway, that's the only way people have mentioned mention her name, and that just tells you who's really feared by the fighters and who you really, who really really runs things in the women's division. Because nobody it's like it's like the Candyman. Nobody wants to say her name three times. They they just they'll say it twice. The last time, uh, so who won't you fight? Uh, that fighter, that unnamed fighter at forty five. You know the invicted champion. You know the one who's the strike force champion too. The one to be Gina Carano. What's her name? I can't recall at this moment. And it's it's just funny because all these girls keep complaining. They keep saying Dana's not giving me a chance. The UFC's not giving me a chance. I don't I don't get the opportunities I want to have. And now here's a clear opportunity you want on the biggest stage possible, and nobody wants to take it. The champion doesn't want to take it. The challenger doesn't want to take it. The bantamweight champion doesn't want to take it. I can see why they didn't have a featherweight division now because nobody wants to compete in it as long as Chris Cyborg's around. The minute she, when she was on, when she had a drug issue, everybody wanted to move up. Everybody wanted to shot. As soon as she got cleared out, you haven't heard a peep from anybody. It's crickets, dead silence. Crazy, isn't it? It's crazy how quickly that can can um break down. It's it's definitely. A it's 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 always a funny situation. Um, talking about you know big fights and big big name fights. King Mo versus Rampage Two is at the end of this month. Uh, for Bellator, does that fight excite you? And do you think it'll do big numbers for the promotion? It'll do big numbers because I mean, even though Mo isn't like a transcendent star, he's actually got he's got a fan base, but he's got even more people who hate him who want to see him get knocked out. So there's there's a lot of people who are gonna watch just to see the loudmouth, cocky King Mo get beat up. I've had this discussion with him before, and that's part part of his appeal. They, they, they think he's cocky. They think he's, he thinks he's better than he is, and they want to see him get get his, his butt whooped. So people are going to tune in just for that opportunity. And a lot and Rampage, he can be as, as rough and rough and, and difficult he can be able to deal with. Fans still have a warm spot in him for all the years he's put in in Pride and UFC. Fans still have a warm spot in their hearts for him, and they will tune in whenever he fights. And, and to be honest, it's a good fight. Rampage hasn't lost the fight in um, he hasn't lost he, he hasn't lost any of his fights in the last what three or four fights. 
in a couple years. He won two fights in Bellator. He beat Maldonado, and then he came back and won another fight in Bellator. So he's like on a four-fight win streak. It's easy for them to spin him as a guy who's a potential heavyweight contender or light heavyweight if he wants to drop back down. And even King Mo's only lost – he's lost about the past two years, and he's fought a lot. So it, it's a fight that has – something online because whoever wins it might be in the line in line for a light heavyweight shot or a title heavyweight shot and it has bad blood it's a rematch fight and that fight was on i think that fight was on pay-per-view and even though it didn't do huge numbers for bellator bellator card as much as a low-selling ufc card is actually quite the accomplishment you know they they only did a hundred thousand but that's bellator a hundred thousand for them is like four hundred thousand for the UFC, they that had that would be far and away more than they expected because they didn't have any big name, brand name stars on that pay per view. So there's people who put their put down their hard earned money to buy a pay per view event with these guys fighting on it. So I can't imagine there won't be people who won't just see. Yeah, that's that's um, I'm looking forward. So I think that's kind of, that's a fight I'm kind of interested in seeing just because you know it it has the kind of ability to be talked up in the right type of way. Um, we'll see if it delivers, but um, Bellator does a very good job, Bellator does a very good job of, of playing that, but when they have fights with bad blood, Bellator isn't top-notch and everything, but they are excellent in doing like build-ups for those fights. The build-up for Rampage Mo 1 was great. It drew in a lot of people. I remember when they did the Eddie Alvarez, um, Michael Chandler build-up. That was a great. That was a great job they did with that. The Kimbo Slice, Ken Shamrock build up. They did a great job with that. Their their specials and their their thirty minute shorts where they do the background on the fighters and detail the feud. They do they do an excellent job of that. They make every fight feel like it's life or death, and it's for the fate of the world when they do those things. So Bellator is going to do what it takes to make that fight a financial success for them. And I and I actually think it'll be a good fight. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be uh, something worth watching. So let's see. Last question I got for you, man. EBI 11 was held on Sunday on UFC Fight Pass. And for those who don't know, it's the 80 Bravo Invitational. It's a, it's a grappling competition uh, with a different rule set to kind of create some, uh, some, some more with the goal of creating more action-packed fights. However, um, one thing that they brought to the showcase this time around was uh, combat jujitsu, which is basically jujitsu without where you're allowed to strike open palm strikes to the body in the face, body in the head when you're on the ground and you can't strike when you're on the feet. Uh, does does this interest you? I don't know if you caught any of it or if you caught any of the showcase, but does that interest you at all? I like the idea of it. I, I'm actually as, a, as an MMA fan. Does this does this interest you? Would that get you to watch? I like the idea of it. I, I I think I'd rather see punches. I know that's to play with, but I think if they actually had punches on the ground, that, that would add to the popularity and would draw more people in. You know, just, I mean, we know that open-handed strikes can be very damaging. They can, yeah, they've had bones broken, um, you know, concussions, cuts caused by them. But the actual look of someone getting punched in the face or knowing if they go in this position, they're going to get hammer-fisted. As to the danger of the uh, of the whole experience, because grappling in itself is actually, I I get pleasure from watching it. But a lot of people, grappling their their concept is they go back to the idea of MMA. If this guy tried that in MMA, he would just get knocked out. So these guys aren't really fighting; they're not really competing. 
if you have those guys getting, you know, you go for a knee bar in this position and a guy can just tee off on you, when you complete it, so a reaction from the fans. And if you don't complete it and a guy gets out of, out of it just by punching you, that draws a, a more visceral reaction because it seems more like it's an actual fight instead of just a grappling competition. And that actual element of, of combat and harm being done, that superficial harm that comes from getting punched in the face or the way somebody reacts when they get hit in the stomach on the ground, that's what I think would take to draw more fans in. Because most people don't know grappling well enough to appreciate what they're seeing. It just looks boring. And also it would help because a lot of the positions and setups they do to get into grappling exchanges, when you know you can strike somebody when you're on the ground, somebody's going to have to be more offensive on the feet with takedowns, trips, and throws because you can get punished for that now. And most of the guys are good enough to defend submissions and ride submissions out. And if they can't, they have the option of striking with closed fists on the ground, that changes a whole lot up. That changes those people who like to play guard a lot. They might not play that as much. Yeah, I'm definitely um, interested in seeing where this goes because uh, they're they're. As a grappler, what, why do you think that grappling hasn't really caught on as a professional sport? Like, why do you think it hasn't made more strides? Um, I think it's headed. The, I think it's headed the right direction. Uh, I think that yes, it's slow. Yes, it's it's difficult. I think that there's a lot of there's there's a lot of mitigating factors. Organizations are now beginning to pay. You know, you got Fight to Win. You got Polaris. You have so many different organizations that are willing to pay. Uh, athletes to get out there and to compete. So you have that. That's headed in the right direction. And you also have more and more athletes that are definitely doing it. You, you see there's opportunity for a correlation when you have guys like Gilbert Burns, Benil Dariush, um, so many guys that are doing both and willing to do willing to, to, to do both. Uh, so that is something that is going to help it. I just think that it needs to, and being on UFC Fight Pass is really going to help as well. So I think that it just needs to kind of slowly carve out its own niche in the um, industry. I think it's slowly but surely headed in, in the right direction. I, I, would, I would think that even like, because you know, there's a lot of wrestlers and, and people who, get into, who want to get into MMA but don't because they're not comfortable with the overall striking acumen of it. But I would think that if this ever really gets going, if you could get like, you know, other judoka or wrestlers to come in, I mean, there'd still be strikes in it, but there wouldn't be as much damage as far as the stand-up exchanges with striking. And and having more like world-ranked wrestlers or judoka or even the, some of the combat sambo guys, that would, would bring in other nationalities and that would help the fan base develop because you'd see guys who, who grew up in your chosen sport and have kids growing up who don't just dream of being in the Olympics or the world championships, but they dream of having a career after that and trying their hand at this kind of grappling. But you have to lay the foundation and you have to start bringing in those kind of people, which means you have to offer more money, like a, a not just a pay structure, but a structure of exposure and a structure of media that's going to allow them to kind of share their story and as well as taking advantage of the fact that they're world-class athletes who've accomplished so much in their chosen individual grappling discipline. I mean, I think it has a lot of potential because there's a lot of guys who just don't do MMA for that reason. They don't want to get beat up. They're not comfortable with that. And I think that would be a good middle ground for a lot of people. It's going to have to, they just have to have a little bit more stability uh, to be able to prove that they can maintain their organization and provide opportunities for people who take part in their organization. 
attention. It's that stability and the opportunities provided. Nobody just wants to be out somewhere and not know that, not know what's going to happen, and not know what's going to be done with them when they sign up. Yeah, I think that that's that's a very uh, good breakdown. It's a very good points there, man. So, uh, what else are you working on this week for MMA, MMA ratings? As I said, I already did the the piece about Vetch uh, um, and and Marianne. It's part of it's a series I have called "It's About to Get Real," where I br- pick one fight every every time they have a card, and I kind of break it down, tell the history of it, and give the technical and strategical analysis of how the fight could go and who I think is going to win. So I sent that out today, and I'm actually going to finish up another part where I'm actually discussing Bellator and how UFC kind of left the door by a UFC kind of repeated their mistake earlier on. Strike Force, which was a Scott Coker run organization. Caught, caught up with the UFC because the UFC didn't have a women's division. And they introduced Ronda Rousey. They had Ronda Rousey, and they kind of got her going and had Gina Carano and Cyborg. They brought them to the masses, and that's kind of what kept Strike Force on the UFC right on their tail because they had this whole other element to their, to their cards and their organization that, that the UFC couldn't compete with. And once again, I see history of repeating itself because now the UFC has a featherweight division, Bellator has more featherweight fighters, and they have they, they have the better featherweight champion. On top of that, bring has a flyweight division they're developing right now, and that's something that people in the UFC fans of the UFC wanted the UFC to produce for them, and the UFC hasn't. You had fighters and fans asking for that. So now, once again, because of the the female divisions, and is actually actually has a, a leg up on the UFC because they're attacking two areas that the UFC has not addressed correctly or at all in the case of flyweight. But once again, it's kind of Bellator in a position where they can say, hey, in all these other areas, we can compete with the UFC, but in these two areas specifically, we're actually better than them. They don't have a flyweight division. They don't have a featherweight division. So in these these two areas, we're actually better than the UFC. And nobody would have predicted that Bellator having a leg up on the UFC in anything. They do. Uh And it just kind of explores that. And what it means moving forward for both organizations. You know, I definitely think Bellator is kind of headed in the right direction too. There are some changes that they need to make, but I am always kind of pleased with them. They just kind of they gotta find some they gotta find some names. They gotta build some names the right way. But I think that they're um, trying to. They're, I think they're trying to do that. They just gotta. They and they're counting on some of these older guys like Josh Thompson and others to get some wins, but it's just not happening right now thing is they're doing with the women's division they're doing what they should have done with the men's division you know slowly fold out the top instead of just signing a big name they didn't sign a big name featherweight they got some experienced featherweights and they started bringing in some others they started introducing them slowly now they have a division doing the same thing with the flyweights and then they're going to have a title fight for it they did it step by step by step over the period of a year or two but with these other divisions they just Vincent Henderson throw him in there Josh Thompson sign him and that's not going to fix your problems. You need second, third, fourth-tier fighters to fill out the division to provide more quality across the board on the main cards in the events as a whole and also to develop or find a diamond in the rough or a guy who's thought, was, who's thought to be a fourth-tier fighter who goes on some kind of run and ends up being a guy who, who's an unlikely title challenger. Mm-hmm. But that, that requires patience and that requires depth, two things that Bellator has not consistently shown over their existence. But in the case of these two divisions, 
they've done it and it's given them a leg up on the UFC. So we're I'm hoping to see if they repeat that with the other divisions and they learn from that success they've had. Yeah, definitely they gotta learn from those situations. Um I have an interesting piece on Barbosa and Darius coming up for it's probably gonna go up tomorrow. And other than that, check out my piece on um who did I write about? Tyron Woodley in UFC 209 to see you know, if that win was really a win or if it was kind of a situation that set everybody back a little bit. So you can definitely take that piece and check that out. And yes. Um, you know, after, after a win, like, we talked about what a loss could mean for him or an ugly win. And you notice after an ugly win, he hasn't been quite as things he talked about before. Off a of performance like that, He's picking his word. He's he's still stating certain points, seeing the way he did before. He's he's a little bit more calmer. He's a little bit more patient because he knows coming off a fight like that, you can't you can't say too much. The fans are on your side. The organization's on your side. You didn't do enough to bring them on your side. Not he he knows the situation he's in and he's acting accordingly. Now if he would have got a huge knockout, you you would have heard certain conversations happening again. But he he barely scraped by in a very unexciting. And somewhat uninteresting fight, and he's acting accordingly. Like he knows how that fight went, he knows what that meant for his legacy and in his name and his earning power, and he he's acting in a manner that's, that shows that he's aware of what it meant and what that performance meant. Yeah, definitely there. Um, so I always appreciate you, man. We have another great show. We had a big show last week. Um, we're going to be looking at some new uh, interviews and commentary uh coming up this week as well excuse me for the for next few shows either way i always appreciate having you on man um let's look forward yeah, to one, having one more, one, go ahead one, one more thing uh actually i and I, I i didn't get a chance to tell you but i wanted to say this online uh, on the show a lot of people actually were really impressed that we kind of fleshed out the tyrone woodley issue and kind of covered some other issues at top of mma as far as women's rights and the opportunities women fighters get that we did Kind of indirectly by discussing the Tyron Woodley thing, they said a lot of shows don't have weren't weren't comfortable addressing it or didn't have the kind of nuance that we had in addressing it. And a lot of people actually contacted me and said they appreciated the fact that we didn't run from it and we st- stated the cases of both parties, black or white, in a very intelligent manner that they could they could relate to. Like people weren't you're just attacking the white guy, you're just supporting the black guy. They were like you were fair on both sides. You all both acknowledged some of his limitations. Don't acknowledge some of Thompson's naivety, and you did it in a respectful manner that people could hear and respect and understand and not feel like they were being beat over the head or attacked. And they said that we handled that very well. And I just wanted to let you know on the show and let the fans know the show that people appreciate a different look at MMA because it's not just punches and kicks and strategies. It's social issues. It's gender issues. It's money issues. There's a lot of elements to this sport that we all love, even though we like to focus on the fight aspect of it. There's a lot of other aspects that impact the fight aspect. There's definitely a lot of there are a lot of different aspects to talk about when it comes to two individuals getting into the cage. Well, professional fight, professional sports as a whole, there are always a lot of different aspects to talk about because people just don't seem to understand that politics and society issues do go hand in hand with sports. Um, it's whether you want to believe it or not, but those situations definitely do go hand in hand. Yes, sir, they do. So I didn't hold you up. Go ahead. Didn't mean to hold you up. Just wanted to make sure you uh, knew that. And, and some of the fans knew that we had gotten a lot of feedback on that conversation. A lot of people were really kind of caught up in that conversation. They're like, oh, y'all ended it? Okay. We can talk about fights, I guess. They were they were pretty excited about it. Yeah, man. It's, it's a hell of a conversation, dude. And, I, and 
I would love to keep having it because I think I, I think we need to, especially, and I, that's why I'm glad that Tyron got the win because I feel I hope that he continues to drive that conversation and continue to push it forward. Yeah, I mean, a lot of conversations need to be had outside of just the typical conversations had, and I'm not bashing anybody's show or anybody's outlook on on the sport, but there's a lot of other things that come into play when you discuss these things, and you can't be afraid of discussing them because they all impact in the cage on any given night. Though sexism, racism, just classism, it all impacts how guys are taken, where they're ranked. It affects all of us in our real life, and it affects us in our escape watching these guys go to war in the cage, or these girls as well. So you can't be scared to have, have these discussions because these discussions are very big and they help shape the fighters who were taking part in these events. And as a result, they impact and inspire or insult and frustrate some of these guys, how they do or how they carry themselves and what they represent. So it's important to have those discussions. We can't be scared to have those discussions. We can't be, not at all. So again, man, thanks, and I'm looking forward to uh, our next show, man. We'll be back next week. All right, so you take it easy, man. Have a good one.